0: Our next topic of discussion is avian cognition and consciousness, the great parrot and its implications on animal welfare. So uh, animal consciousness uh, tends to be a fun topic in the effective altruism community. Um, Oftentimes when we're thinking about how to do the most good in the world, the discussion seems to focus on uh, human welfare. Um, But there are thousands upon thousands of species that exist in the world, many of whom have the potential to experience pain or pleasure. And if they do, these seem to have very vast implications for the kinds of things that we should be working on and how we might work on them. Uh, with us to discuss whether or not animals uh, have this kind of consciousness. And a specific study about this is Irene Pepperberg, a research associate at Harvard University, a lecturer at multiple universities, um, author of many papers and many discussions. Um, I will let her so, uh, introduce uh, her topic further and the study that
1: she's focusing on with it. So thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. When I started this field, literally 40 years ago, the topic of avian cognition was an oxymoron. People had no understanding of the fact that these animals could think, could feel, could experience the world the way we did. Um, there was good reason for this. In the 40s and 50s, Maurer, who was at Harvard at the time, tried to do a bunch of work with these animals, with a bunch of sp- of mimetic birds, trying to communicate with them, trying to teach them to use English speech. He used the standard operant behavior technique of the day where you present the animals with a stimulus, you treat the head as a black box, you don't care what's going on. The animal has been starved down to 80% of its normal body weight. Think about how you feel when lunch is late, okay? All right, all you can think about is food. So imagine this animal starved down to 80% of its body weight. You present it with a stimulus, you look for the correct response. If it is the correct response, the animal gets a little piece of food, okay? The stimulus has nothing to do with the reward. So the idea was Maurer started by wanting the birds to say hello in the room. The birds learned that very quickly because they said hello, they got a piece of food. But to them, getting saying hello meant give me food. So they would say hello at all sorts of inopportune times. Mauer did not reward them, and of course the behavior became extinguished, and essentially they didn't learn much of anything. It was considered a great failure, and the birds were considered stupid mindless mimics for this reason. Grossleit and Zainer, about a decade later, said, aha, Mauer wasn't rigorous enough, so they locked a bunch of minor birds in sound isolation boxes and played them tapes of human speech, thinking that was going to work. Birds learned to reproduce the sounds of things going on in the laboratory. Squeak doors opening and closing, faucets running, but nothing on the tapes because nobody understood at that point that communication was a social issue. So again, these birds were considered mindless mimics. Everybody, you know, pointed to the birds sitting there going like Polly want a cracker in somebody's spare bedroom. Fast forward to 1970s. Um, Dietmar Tod was a research associate and assistant professor in the laboratory of Otto Kurle in Germany. He was assigned to train these birds to communicate in German. Because he was an ethologist, he sat there thinking about, okay, how do these birds learn in the wild? They learn by listening and watching to other birds communicate using speech, so he developed this technique called the Model Rival, or MR, technique in which humans demonstrated the behavior that they wanted the birds to learn. So the point was you're looking at the head not as a black box but as a social information processing system. It's a ridiculously simple technique. Bird sits on perch. Bird is not starved. You have an object the bird wants to play with, OK? Bird is really excited. Show it to a student. And I say to her, what's this? She says, key. She gets to play with the key. The bird is watching. I make this weird noise. I get this object. Pretty cool. We then exchange roles of this model. She's the model for the bird's behavior and it's rival for my attention. She shows it to me and I go, Rat. and hmm. okay, not any weird new noise causes a transfer of the object. I get another chance. I say key. I get the key and I get to scratch my chin and play with it. We train the bird using this technique I could, you know, in Q&A maybe we can talk a little bit more about it. I don't want to spend the whole, whole talk about this. But the point is we are demonstrating to the bird what we want it to do. We are showing it what we want it to do. We are using a social interaction system so the bird understands it in the context of its life. Using these techniques, my most famous bird, Alex, Learned to label about 100 different objects, he learned colors, shapes, he learned categories, so you could show him an object and say, what color? And he'd say, blue, what shape, four corner, what matter, wood, what toy, block, okay? He understood concepts of same, different. You show him any two things from your pocket and say, what's same or what's different? And he would say, color, shape, matter, or none, if nothing was same or different. So he had a concept of absence, he understood relative size. Again, take any two things out of your pocket. What color bigger? What color smaller? What matter bigger? What matter smaller? He was then able to transfer the concept of absence to the absence of a size difference. So without any training, first time I showed him two things of the same size, and I said, what color bigger? He looks at me and goes, what's same? And I said, well, you tell me. You know, and he looks at it again, he goes, none. So he transferred this concept of absence from same and different to relative size. He had a concept of numbers with long story, but basically he learned how to count. He's one of the only creatures that are not human in the world who was able to understand what we call the successor function. That once you learn a number line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that each number is one more than the one before it and one less than the one after it. Okay, back and forth like that, or the other way around. Anyway, bottom line is he understood this, and he could infer these numbers, what they're meaning from learning their number line. Only non-human who could do this. Joint attention. We found that this modeling technique was critical. We had to jointly attend to the objects that he was attending to to get him to learn the labels for these things. He understood recursion not in the linguistic sense of this is the cat that bit the rat that ate the cheese that lived in the house that Jack built, understanding those different labels, different phrases that are embedded in another phrase. But he understood it in the terms of giving him, say, a tray of junk of different objects, of colors and shapes and matter, and say, what object is green and three corners? Or what color is four corner and wood? So he had to go back and recursively understand, what was I talking about at the beginning? What was my question? And then follow in with the conjunctive bit, of the other two attributes, his, voc- function- his vocalizations were functional and intentional. He had phrases like "I want X and want to go Y," where X and Y were the appropriate object or location labels. Okay, if he asked for a banana and you gave him a grape, he'd literally take the grape and throw it at you and go, "You know, want banana? Like, what don't you understand about this question?" Okay, um, there was fast mapping of a sort in the sense that he learned to make up labels. Out of bits and pieces of other labels. So he learned to the color gray by seeing himself in a mirror and asking what color. And then he started playing with it and went to grape, grain, chain, cane. And if we would give him the objects that related to those new labels, they embedded, became embedded in his repertoire and expanded his repertoire. So this is a very, you know, quick summary of, you know, thir- that was 30 years of work. Um This is a slide, this does not work, um, but basically these were just showing he could say things like want corn, want cork, and we'd ask him what color the cup was, and he'd say orange. You have to believe me on this, the slide doesn't work. Okay, we have, after Alex is passing, those of you may know the story about that, which is a whole other lecture. Um, Griffin was his junior partner in here, and we've been looking at things like delayed gratification, Piagetian liquid conservation, and probabilistic reasoning, and today we're just going to talk about delayed gratification. Um, that's the marshmallow test with children. I don't know how many of you know about this work, but Michelle, in the 70s, he tested about 600 children. They were four years old. He'd put them in a room. Very nice room. Nothing looked like a laboratory. And he'd sit them down at a chair and a table, and he'd put a marshmallow on a plate and say, here's a marshmallow. Um, you can eat it anytime you want, but I have to go run some errands. And if you wait until I come back, you can get two marshmallows. And basically, they had to wait for 15 minutes. If you know four-year-old children, 15 minutes is a lifetime, <laughs> okay? And some of them did. Some of them didn't. The real interesting part of this was, in 1970s, you know, this was 1970s, he came back 30 years later, found as many of these children as he could, interviewed them. And he found out that the kids that waited, okay, that who were able to distract themselves in various ways, had incredibly much more successful lives. They had gone to, you know, had done better on their college entrance exams, they had gone to better schools, they had gotten higher GPAs, they were making more money, they had more successful marriages. Okay, Their lives were just immensely better. And so the point was, is that the idea is that if you can delay gratification, if you could think about the implications of what you're doing, okay, to exhibit self-control, to figure out why you should not do something right now because it would be so much better if you didn't and waited later on, you're succeeding better. And this was thought for a long time to be an exclusively human abilities, that animals were stupid, they were stimulus driven, and you know, they had no possibilities of self-control, no planning for the future. Okay? This is a idea that involves awareness and consciousness and all these other cool things. The task itself is much more complicated than it sounds actually. It can involve waiting for more the second marshmallow. It could be involved in waiting for better. If you're not so, you know, if you like marshmallows, but wow, if you like Oreo cookies, you know, it might be better to wait for an Oreo cookie instead of a marshmallow, okay? Um some of the some of these tasks when given to animals involve what we call delay maintenance. So there are studies where well, they'll show a chimpanzee, here is one marshmallow or three marshmallows, which do you want? And of course, the, you know, chimpanzee goes three, but then they have to wait for five minutes to get the three. And the idea is after a number of these types of tests, they'll, you know, if they choose one, they get it right away, that they will choose which one they want appropriately. It turns out that there's a problem with this because chimpanzees cannot inhibit picking the greater amounts of food. So a lot of these studies that are, that don't have this delay maintenance built into them don't quite show you what's going on with these animals. And there's some studies showing that for some individuals, be it human or animal, that having seeing the second marshmallow off in the distance makes it easier or sometimes it makes it harder to wait. So these are all these different complications of the task. Um, It's done with a lot of non-humans. Again, the apes seem to be able to wait for both more and better, but there's some complications of the studies. The interesting thing is, for birds, so far all we can find is birds waiting for better, and not for very long. Um, Until our study, the avian maximum was a corvid, 11 minutes at most. Cockatoos only could wait for two minutes, but the cockatoos had to keep the—they had to keep like a pecan in their beaks that they could trade for a cashew. And imagine keeping something really yummy in your mouth, okay—that you couldn't eat to be able to trade for something else. So they made it a little harder for these birds. The corvids actually succeeded better because corvids cash. They store food. So what the corvids would do would take the food and shove it in the bottom of the substrate in the cage and let it sit there. So, and then pull it out and give it back to the experimenter. So there were a lot of different things about this. Ecologically, think about why birds do better with, you know, with better versus more. If you're flying around, you see some fruit in a tree, that would be nice. But if you fly a little further, you get nuts. And nuts are a much better caloric, you know, bang for the buck of flying around. If you're flying around, you see a couple of nuts down there. It's no big deal to stop and grab a nut or two on your way to the bigger batch of nuts. So we're trying to actually figure out ways of getting our birds to do it for more. But that's another story. So the interesting thing about our bird Griffin was that he understood the same kinds of things that Alex did. We communicate with him in English, and he understood the label wait in the course of the laboratory situation. So um, he could wait for something to happen or not. And during the day, he gets uh, cooked grains twice a day. He has to wait till they cool down, OK? I come in, and he wants immediately to be preened. He wants to be on me. But he has to wait till I take off my outdoor shoes to use hand sanitizer and things like that. So in those cases, he has no choice. Our question was, could he choose to wait? Okay. The same way the children choose to wait for the marshmallow. And we decided, for obvious reasons, to test him on better. So we had to establish a food hierarchy. Okay. He loves, like little children, he loves skittles and things like that. Um, nuts and crackers are about the same, which are, and they're better than berries, which he also likes, which are better, you know, and cereals. So he likes all those things. They're all treats. Okay. They're not part of his, you know, it's like giving, it's like telling your child that you can have a few M&Ms a day, but you can't just gorge on M&Ms. So all these things are the equivalent sort of an M&Ms for these birds. Okay. They have their regular parrot chow and they get all sorts of great fruits and vegetables, but you know, do you want broccoli or do you want a skittle? Right? Okay. So this was a choice that we gave him. Um, so we had different trial types. We had the experimenter in the room, the better reward visible, better reward invisible. We had control trials, and these are really important. We asked them to wait for the lesser reward, okay, and I'll explain that in a little bit, bit. And we randomized all the different time delays, which again is very important. Okay, so we had 10 trials for all the different time delays. He had one control trial for each of the delays, and we randomized everything. So the point is he never knew how long he was going to have to wait. So we'd set it up and he could wait 10 seconds or he could wait 15 minutes. And the reason for that is we didn't want to train him. Okay, in many of the other studies with the animals, if the animal waited for 10 seconds, then they extended it to 20 seconds. And then they extended it to 60 seconds. So you were training the animal to wait longer and longer. We didn't want to train him. That wasn't the point. You didn't train these little kids. You just wanted to see what they would do. Okay. And he couldn't, he's not a caching creature. He doesn't know how to hide something so he couldn't see it. So it made it a more difficult for him. But unlike those poor cockatoos, we didn't make him keep the nut in his beak or whatever. We had them in little cups. So this was the deal. We'd show him the two treats. We would cover one of the treats. We'd say, wait. And then the other treat would disappear. And there he is looking a little bit forlorn as we left the room and one treats in his face. Okay, um, so the point is he had to de- have this delay maintenance. He could break it any time. There's a berry in the cup. Berries are yummy. Any time he could sit there and eat the berry. But he had been told that if he waited, you know, there was a nut that was in another cup. Okay, he succeeded on all the trials. Um, it's The color isn't showing up on the slide. There is... Some, they're invisible and they're visible, but it doesn't really matter. He's basically, you could see that he's 90% correct. At all the different time delays, whatever, he basically waited. The interesting thing is he sometimes failed, and even those failures were incredibly interesting because they showed that he hadn't lost interest in the this treat, okay? At one of the f- things, he waited 14 minutes and 15 seconds, and he gave up. So that's important because some of the people using the ape studies, they tested them with cucumbers versus bananas. And the, who cared about a cucumber? You know, I mean, after 15 minutes, you didn't even care about eating the cucumber. This wasn't the case. After 14 minutes and 15, you know, whatever, he really still wanted that nut. So this was an incredible control. Okay. On invisible trials, he had to have a representation. Remember, the thing disappeared, and he had to think, oh, well, here's a yummy, you know, here's a yummy nut, but if I wait a Skittle would be coming. It had to have some kind of representation of that. Again, an awareness, some consciousness of what was going on. Importantly, wait was not a command. This wasn't like a dog who's, you know, you have your dog, and you put the biscuit on his nose, and he just sits there waiting for you to tell him to, you can now he eat it. No, because of our control trials, he failed, appropriately, all the control trials. If we gave him a Skittle and we told him to wait for a nut, he literally would look at us, look at that, look at it, about two seconds, and he'd just sit and eat it. Okay, you know, it's like, are you nuts? You know, I mean, crazy. I just, you know, I know what's going on here, okay? He took it right away. So this is really important. And again, he wasn't learning to wait. He was learning to distract himself. Okay, the first half of the data, um, you could see that it wasn't, you know, he wasn't waiting as long, but then he learned how to distract himself. And the important thing was, the killer of this is, we're going to show you a video in just a second. He was using the same kind of distracting behaviors that the kids used to distract themselves. And if we can play the video, we have to switch to another computer. So here where it's being left, shown the object. Watch, she's pushing it away. He throws it so he doesn't have to look at it. She's licking it. He's licking it. He drops the cranberry. He asks for a nut. It's like, this little girl is trying to distract herself by falling asleep. Watch his little eyes start to close. (laughs) This little boy is dancing around, trying to distract himself. You'll see Griffin, he's floofing. He's starting to figure out what else he can do. This is one of the failures. It's like, all right, I just can't wait. And you see this little boy, he's just going to shove it, and Griffin's eating the nut. These, we took the children off of YouTube. Okay, now the importance of this, you have to realize that it works only if the subject trusts the system. Okay, people went back and did this. Remember, Michelle did this in the 70s with children who were sort of middle-class kids. You know, Aslan and others went back and did it with children in low socioeconomic status. These children failed completely. Why? They asked them, they said, why didn't you wait? And the little kids would say, I didn't trust that you'd come back with a treat. You know, adults in my my life. They, why should I trust you? Nobody, you know, or they'd say things like, "Well, well, I was afraid my brother would come in and steal it." So you can think of the implications of this, all right, in terms of of trust and care and and things about the children. You realize that the children could wait; they had a better life. If they can't wait, why can't they wait? And why won't they have a better life? And things like that. I mean, I'm not going to go into this, but you can understand how we're getting to the basics of issues here. And the point was the bird had to trust us. He we actually there was a student who couldn't be involved in this project because we had a separate study in which he actually ate a treat one of his treats in front of him. And we knew we couldn't use this student because he wouldn't trust her to come back with the treat. Okay? So this is a very important thing that these things are based on trust and awareness and of care. Okay, um, the main point of this is that parents have the same skills as these four-year-old children, okay? Um, some of them were able to wait longer than other humans and other longer than some of the children. And the implications of this for conservation, for companion animals, using the birds as models for intelligent learning systems, the issues that we have to think about are when we look at these birds, and you saw, I mean, the split-screen video, he's doing the same things these little kids do. Yet we are out there. We are destroying their habitat. These birds are being—you know—my po- students were chased by machete-wielding poachers who are getting these birds for the pet trade. I'm not saying that birds; these birds cannot be pets, but people have to be taught about what they're getting into. They're noisy. They're loud. They bite. They chew up your—you know—great grand- grandma's—you know—antique armoire because they don't see the difference between that piece of wood and the chew toy you give them as their cage. Okay. And then they get dumped in, in rescues. All right. Where they are treated as best they can. These birds should be flying free in the wild, but we are destroying their habitat in the wild. So these are things to think about. Okay. There's so many implications about what we are doing in terms of, of these companion animals and what we have to think about. What makes a good companion animal? How should we, you know, how should we do things to make their lives better, our lives better? and things like that. And again, maybe we can get into some of that in terms of questions and answers, because I want you to have some time for the questions and answers. So I appreciate your listening to this, to getting some feeling for the intelligence of these birds. Again, this is a tiny, tiny little snapshot of the kinds of things they're doing. We're studying, showing that for Piaget in conservation, they're as good as a five-year-old child. In terms of some probabilistic studies, they are as good as a seven-year-old child. So we're doing a lot of things to try to raise basically the consciousness of humans to the consciousness of the birds. So again, want to thank you very much, and I think we have maybe five minutes for questions, but I'll be around for the whole weekend if you want to talk to me. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, yeah, well, uh, I'll let you point to people who raised their hands in the audience since people didn't have time to submit on yeah, the link. We
1: got one or two um, questions. And
0: then uh, if you have subsequent
1: questions okay. after these, you can There's go a fellow consult. in a sport coat. And a yeah, yeah. And speak loud because you're not miked.
0: I, I feel like I read your book because my wife, the animal lover, read passages at great length to me aloud <laughs> many times. So she's jealous that I'm here. And, uh, as effective altruists, I'm, uh, I feel like the question as to whether the cognitive capacities of certain animals is probably less interesting to us than the capacity of animals to suffer or feel joy or their experience of sentience. And I wonder if there's a way something like that could be measured among animals.
1: Um, it's, it's very hard, for the kinds of work that I do, to get into emotions. And the reason I say that is, if, if we understood each other's emotions very well, psychiatrists and psychologists would be completely out of work. I mean, literally, your spouse does something, and you don't know—are they angry at you, or do they just have a bad day at work? So, in this, case, it's very hard. But you can see—you can see from watching his expressions—and that's why I wanted this video for so long. The expressions of excitement when the student—you missed that—when the student came back with the treat, there was this—you could tell on his face. This ex- excitement, he's looking up at her like, you know, the sun has broken through the clouds, okay? You can see when he's sitting there kind of falling asleep and bored. You can see these kinds of things. So you can impute those kinds of emotions. You can impute what's going on with these animals. Um, and this is something that we need to think about, okay? What are we doing to this world, not just for ourselves, but for all these creatures with whom we share this world? And this is something we really need to think about. And there's all sorts of implications. I mean, you can talk about, you know, I've got three minutes here, but one of the things I want to just talk about. So we talk about, you know, getting rid of mosquitoes. And we think about, whoa, wouldn't that be great? Think about all the birds that need those mosquitoes as part of their diet. People say, well, it's only 10%. Yeah, these birds won't make it overnight if you get if they have a 10% failure in eating during the day. They won't make it through the night. Oh, so we'll just leave some bird populations. All right, these are the same birds that are going to eat the locusts, that eat the crops, okay? These are the birds that provide that are prey items for other animals, that are prey items for other animals, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you have to think about things in this global sense that we are all interconnected, and hurting one bit of our environment hurts the rest of it. So, you know, that's something as a global people and you know, trying to be effective altruists, you need to think about. And that's why I think I was put next to Reese, because of these implications. So one more question. Yes.
0: So I think that there's a, there are a lot of implications from the research that you've done um, on the state of factory animals, in particular chickens, turkeys, all those. Um, So I guess it's sort of two questions. One, how well do you think that the research that you've done on these parrots translates over into other uh, bird species? Do they have a similar level of intelligence and sentience? And then secondly, if they do, um, what actions can we take to inform the public to change the sort of public perception that birds are stupid?
1: Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing. When I started this work, I mean, you know, again, even I didn't understand how incredibly smart chickens were. I have a colleague in... Italy, Giorgio Valorteguera. If you're interested about chicken intelligence, read his papers, all right? And these are little chicks, okay, And they're doing really incredible things in terms of maybe not counting the way Alex was counting, but they understand number concepts. They understand object permanence. They have all these other abilities, Okay, So the issue is, and I'm not going to try to convert everybody to be vegans, um, but I do want to convert people to think about free-range chickens. Think about, I mean, Temple Grandin is a very good friend of mine. Um, and she spends a lot of time thinking about how we can, you know, treat animals in a humane way so that if we decide we do need to eat them for various reasons, okay, we can do it in a way that is not, no, not factory farming, not making horrible things of their lives. Um, there's, there's so many things. There's a book out there that I've read that compared the life of a factory farm animal to an animal, a chicken that's part of a um, rooster cockfighting and things. And you look at this and, and both things seem to be horrible. But the cockfighting animal had a much better life overall. Okay. Even though it ended in this horrible bloody mess, you know, when it was alive, it had a better life. So there are all these balances, checks and balances and things. And I think people need to, Think about these issues, all right, and figure out in their own minds, okay, how can we deal with these various important aspects of our life and get balance and empathy, okay? And empathy is a really big issue of thinking about putting things in, you know, putting yourself in the environment of the animal and thinking about how to make its life improved in any which way and form. Again, and I'm out of time and have to do, but I will be around all weekend if you want to talk. So thank you so much.